kids last night had to be dragged kicking and screaming from the Saturday night service, which is actually not much different than a Sunday service, but Saturday night service, they have fun. Sundays, they're starving, so um, different reasons, so we prefer the fun over starving. Um, my name is Henry Michael. I am pastor over the student ministry and the family ministry, and so I'm glad to be able to talk with you all today. Um, we're going to be talking about love this week was Valentine's Day, so it's perfect timing for this, and hopefully you guys did a little bit better than I did on Valentine's Day. Um, I read this article in the Wall Street Journal that recently said, um, real love doesn't come from God, it's actually just a bunch of chemical reactions in your brain, and so I decided to run with that um, this this. Uh, this Valentine's Day. So I took my wife. I didn't plan ahead because it's just a brain thing, you know. Didn't plan ahead. Uh, so we ended up going to the only place that had a room that didn't have an over an hour wait, which was a local Chinese buffet. And um, over my wife's uh, plate of lukewarm lo mein, uh, I gave her a card. And on this card, it didn't have a heart on it because... <laughs> Only silly people put hearts on there. Um, love does not come from the heart. It comes from the brain. So I put a gray blob that looked like cauliflower, which was supposed to be my brain on it. And, um, and I, I'm about to show you the slide of what was inside of it because uh, if you want to knock out your significant other next year, you should probably write this down. Um, this is for free, okay? Um, you'll realize how lucky my wife is, okay? So it said in this card... Darling, dopamine flood, floods my caudate nucleus every time I look at you. Love and attraction are all tangled in the convoluted wiring of the brain. She's lucky. You're, and you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Couple. All right. We got some engineers. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> Only half that story is true. I didn't, do the, I didn't do that, actually. I did bring her to a Chinese buffet, and the food was lukewarm. But I did get her flowers, just no card. Um, last night, um, I had a, different sides of support or angst against how I treated my wife on Valentine's Day. Some people were like, good job, cards are dumb. And some people were like, here's $50. <laughs> you know, like, obviously you're struggling. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Love is difficult to define. Um, it's notoriously difficult. You can look at uh, music, you can look at pop culture, you can look at movies, TV shows. Uh, everyone that you ask has a different definition of love, but I think if we were to ask any of us in here, it'd be really easy to start talking about things that we do love. And we can list these things for, forever. And I, I listed a couple of my things. I, I love my family. There's my kids. They're cute. I love them. Um, I love a good meal, too, a non-lukewarm meal. Um, I love a good song. This is DC Talk. They only have good songs, right? If you grew up in the church, you'd get it. Um, I love the feeling of exercise. Um, I love the feeling of a great conversation. And I love beating Kyler at pickleball. <laughs> and we could talk for hours on what things that we love, but the real problem is not necessarily the things that we love is just how perfect the situations have to be in order to feel these loves. And other than my family, which I like to think that I love them no matter what, um, these other things are, are pretty uh, temperamental. 
All, in most of these cases, if you were to look at them, the situation has to be just right for me to love a meal, to love uh, a conversation, to love an experience. I have to make sure that Kyler's having a bad day on the pickleball court in order for me to actually beat him. That love and that list is mostly temperamental. The love Jesus calls, to, uh, calls us to and the, the love that Jesus gives us is not temperamental. And that's, a good, that's good news. It doesn't depend on a series of situations that have to go just right for him to love us. It doesn't have to do with our effort in order for us to act just right for, for us to be lovable by Jesus. Love is the center of, center of our faith. And despite what the Wall Street Journal says, it does come from God. Because he is love. He's the fullness of love. It doesn't come to us forcefully. We, don't, we aren't forced to love God, and God isn't forced to love us. But it is what we're supposed to be known for. Jesus says the two greatest commandments are to love God and love our neighbor. John 13 says, our witness depends on our love. The world will know that we are Christians, that we are Jesus followers by our love. Love is extremely important, but we need to understand the difference between temperamental love and real, sincere love. Love's all over our passage today, and, um, and if we look throughout the whole Bible, the Bible is God's story of love for us. That's what the Bible is, and it's all about how God has brought us into relationship with him. It's all about the story of how we have failed, but the lengths that he went in order for us to know him and love him and be loved by him. God's love is not temperamental or wishy-washy. His love is firm, it's unchanging, and it encourages us to be firm, unchanging, and as this passage encourages us to be sincere. He is the fullness of love, and his love came at the expense of his son so that we can love him and others in return. So we got to look at what does sincere gospel love look like? If it's so difficult to explain, if it's easier to explain temperamental love than actual sincere love, it's easier to point to experiences in our life that we love things that have to go just right versus real sincere love when it's difficult. What is sincere love? Instead of um, viewing it in a way that is about us. So we're going to look at what spirit-empowered love, what sincere love is, but in order for us to let the spirit work in our hearts and in our minds, let's pray that the spirit does actually work in our heart and our minds. And we're going to pray uh, through uh, Ephesians 4 or based on Ephesians 4. So if you can join me in prayer, um, we'll pray right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word given for us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask you that you would speak to us as we look to your truth. Renew our thoughts and our attitudes. Form us to be a reflection of your love and your grace. Help us to live our lives worthy of the calling we have received. Lord, I pray that you empower us not just to understand what love is, but to live it out uh, in, in our churches, in our communities, and in our world. Work in us. Grow us to be more like your son. In your name I pray. Amen. 
So to unlock this new way of thinking, to unlock this new way of love and understanding love, we're going to open up our scriptures. If we want to know what God has for us, we don't want that to be a mystery. So let's look into God's word to understand what he is telling us and how we are to love and live with others. And so we're going to be in Romans chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 12. If you have uh, a tablet or something, we're going to be in, in the NIV, but we have the Bibles in front of you as well. Um, and so if you'd like to follow along, please open up with that. But we're going to be in verse 9. And verse 9 starts out and it says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live at harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So verse 9 starts out with saying, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And so he's exhorting us, he's encouraging us to live out sincere love, but we need to know how we do that. And so we need to start with God. In order to have sincere love, we must start with God. Now, if you read through this passage, and if you notice through this passage, there's not a whole lot of form to it. It's not a story. It's not a, a, a list of arguments where it says point A leads to point B leads to point C. It's a pretty unstructured set of encouragements for the church, which makes it really difficult to know how do we do this without, uh, how do we love like this without being um, uh, uh, fundamental, fundamentalists, where we, where we rely on our efforts rather than on Christ. And so that's why we always have to start with God, not with ourselves, not with our own efforts. And so we're going to look back at chapter 12, verse 1, and I know we spent the last two weeks on it, but this will be a quick reminder of, of why we love in the way that we love. And so if you look at verse 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Love has a starting point, and that is with God. God is the fullness of love. All love flows through God. But our experience of love cannot be taken away from sacrifice. Sacrifice is all about love. And sacrifice doesn't merely mean sacrificing for the sake of sacrifice. We talked the last couple weeks. We don't just sacrifice doing things that we love or enjoy doing it just for the sake of sacrifice or some sense of martyrdom. But we do it for a much, we, we look at sacrifice and we look at love at a much deeper level. 
And that is we are only able to know and love God. And God's only able to truly love us and save us because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I'm going to have this, uh, this passage up here on, 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 the, on the screen. But we're going to look at 1 John 4, 7 through 12, where it illustrates this point. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We can only truly and actually love when Jesus is our Savior, when we are uh, associated with his sacrifice. In the book, Gentle and Lowly, um, Dane Ortland, uh, we've, been, we've talked about this book a couple times, kind of makes a distinction here that's really important for us. He says, there's two ways to live the Christian life. You can either live it for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live it for the smile of God or from it. For a new identity as son or daughter or from it. And this is an important distinction. You can uh, put it in there. It's you can either live for God's love. That is where you're trying to control God. It's trying to control your actions. That if I do A, B, and C, then God will love me. Or from the love of God. Whereas, yeah, I might fail. I might, I might not do the best over here. But I'm living from God. I'm able to love uh, in a way that is so deep because I've experienced God's love in my own life. He uh, illustrates it this way. If you picture a 12-year-old boy or a 12-year-old girl, you can think of the same one and put yourself in the situation. Growing up in a healthy, loving family. And as he matures of no f- fault of his own, you see him trying to really assure his place in the family. And so one, one week, he tries to create a new birth certificate. The following week, he spends extra time scrubbing the kitchen and the bathroom. The next week, he does everything he can to emulate his father, to be just like his father. And his parents are like, this is recognizing this strange behavior and this overworking and this stress and this angst in this young man. They said, what are you doing? And he says, I'm just doing all I can to secure my place in the family. How would a good father respond to that? He would say, calm yourself, my dear son. There's nothing that you could possibly do to earn your place among us. You are our son, period. You didn't do anything at the start to get into our family, and you can't do anything now to get out of our family. Live your life knowing that your sonship is settled and irreversible. This is the same encouragement for us in Christ. We are like that 12-year-old boy sometimes, or that 12-year-old girl. God's love for us and his son's sacrifice for us secures something deep within us. When we realize all the work, all the earning, all the things that we were supposed to do to impress God, to make God happy with us, has already been accomplished by Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. 
as a Christian, your identity as God's child means that his, the, all the love that God has for his son resides in you. That's really, really good news because we're still going to sin. We are going to fail. We are going to be extremely unlovable at many, option, or many times in our lives. But Jesus' sacrifice means that if you are a Christian, his, God's love is full in you. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you, despite how you feel. So we don't live for God's love. We live from it. We don't live for God's sacrifice. We live from it. It means that we are free to love our community. We are lo- free to love our world, people in our world. Because we have the most important thing in common. We have the sacrifice and love of Jesus. So we're going to see how it does that in two important ways. How we can love our community, people that are in our church, that are, are maybe similar but different, and also into a world that is perishing. And so um, the first thing that we see in, this, in our passage in 9 through 21, going back to our our, our passage for this morning is that we see that God's love propels us towards love by empowering us to model sympathy. We don't see sympathy in this passage, but I think it's all over this pa- passage. Um, and the idea behind sympathy is being able to understand and share feelings of others. And sympathy is not really the most popular word right now. Empathy is kind of a more popular word, and I think empathy can fit just as well. And I've really wrestled with how to address empathy versus sympathy. Some people don't care. I originally went into this kind of just flippantly saying empathy or sympathy. But there is a difference. Empathy is when you uh, are able to, as Brene Brown says, enter the pit with a person. You, you have a shared experience with them. If they're in the pits, you're able to go in the pit with them and love them and encourage them. The dark side of that is that if you're in a pit... It can sometimes be if you're sharing that pit with somebody else, you might just want to stay in that pit. Sympathy, on the other hand, uh, you may not have that shared experience, but you try to understand them and you try to love them and you try to walk forward with them. The dark side of that is, uh, this, uh, as we say in the South, um, bless your heart. You know, that's, it's like, oh, you know, you, you're starving? Well, I missed lunch once. That was hard, you know. It's not helpful. We can, that's the dark side of sympathy. But I'm going from Hebrews 4.15. In most uh, translations say that the high priest Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he has experienced what we experience. He was tempted in every single way. Of course, the new NIV says empathize, so it's confusing. But I'm going to use sympathize. And that is the ability to share and understand in someone's hurt, in someone's joys, in someone's pain, and in someone's triumph. So in light of being a living sacrifice, Paul urges our love to be sincere. And again, sincere love is the opposite of temperamental and wishy-washy love. It's the opposite of self-serving love. Again, it says in verse 9, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. It's very difficult to know and understand the pain of somebody without sharing in sincere love. Some of us take um, the cheap way out when it comes to sympathy and truly loving people. And this is how I do it. Uh, My daughter, uh, the other day, um, I got some water out of our refrigerator and some water dripped on the floor and she had her socks on and she stepped in the puddle. 
and our socks got wet. I can understand, that's frustrating. I hate when my socks get wet in the house. But I couldn't share in the temper tantrum that ensued, okay? I just got annoyed, okay? So I can understand, but I can't share. I can understand, Packers fans. That's really sad that you lost. I'm a Vikings fan. We always lose. (laughs) But I can't share in your grief because you like to point out that we always lose. You like to point out that we don't have Super Bowls. So I can't share in it. I don't feel that bad for you, actually. (laughs) More seriously, though, I can understand how difficult it is to be uh, single when the majority of your friends have serious relationships or are married. I can understand what it feels like to be rejected. I can understand the joys of that, that exciting new relationship. I can, ex- I can remember the joys and ex- uh, understand the joys of that first uh, positive pregnancy test. I've experienced those things. I understand those things. Sincere love takes that next step in sharing in those things. And, and that's the hardest part, right? Because if it's not directly affecting me right now, it's hard to share it. I have a jaded sense of sympathy. We're all disposed to a different range of sympathy, and I think we can identify with something on that list or something similar to that list, but a lived out sincere love in this passage is all about understanding, putting ourselves in people's positions and then walking alongside them and loving them and and helping them or celebrating with them as if it's your own experience. Jesus does this all throughout scripture. Paul's not saying this out of thin air. He's not just saying this to to form the church in, in Paul's image. He's pointing to the life of Jesus. Jesus, as I said, sympathizes with us, empathizes with us because he was tempted in every way. He lived life here on earth. We see in verse 10, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourself. We see Jesus all throughout the gospels honoring others above himself. Philippians 2 says, although Jesus was God, he did not use it to his advantage, and he didn't even use, like, he didn't even try to make it make sense to us because our, our minds are finite. It's, it's confusing enough, but instead he humbled himself as a servant even to death, even death on a cross. Jesus had a right to look down on us, on his creation, because we waste his good gifts Every single day. We reject him as king. We treat him as if we know better. Instead, he left the comforts of heaven to be tempted in every single way, to share in our pain, in our struggles. Died a death that we deserved, feeling all the weight of sin in all of our lives so that we can be associated with him in his sacrifice in full love. In verse 13, it says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I think this is the easiest one to see throughout the Gospels, that Jesus very clearly shared with those who were in need. He heals the sick. He feeds people. He provides wine at parties. He 
gives spiritual advice to the spiritual needy, spiritually needy. We're tempted to hoard our time, our resources, our energy for short-sighted personal goals, selfish goals. What we see is Jesus here, he doesn't view people as resource suckers. Instead, he sees people in desperate need and he enters into their life. He doesn't hoard his wisdom or his power for himself and for his own glory, but for the good of the world and for God's glory. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And this one is, this one's the hardest one, but it also shows his humanity because you see him mourning Yet he has all perspective of, of all of human history. He's the creator uh, uh, of, he was there at creation and before creation. He's going to be there until the very end. Yet we see him um, mourning for his friend, Lazarus, who has died. Even though we know in hindsight that he's going to raise him from the dead. We see him mourning for the state of how Jerusalem is and how the world is. And it's such a mess. And he mourns at the fact that of all the things he's going to have to do in order to make this world right. We see Jesus uh, rejoicing as well. He's regularly attacked for going to parties with sinners. We see him uh, rejoicing when God works in people's lives and when understanding is given to people. He's able to do both of those things because his righteousness is not based on on his happiness or his current situation, but in his identity as the son of God. He can rejoice without jealousy of other people because his identity is firmly rooted in God. He can mourn with with anybody because he doesn't trivialize their mourning. He doesn't say, oh, it'll get better. I'm going to save the world here in a minute anyways. He doesn't trivialize it. He understands brokenness, and it breaks his heart. Verse 16, live at harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people in low position. Do not be conceited. You see, Jesus associates with tax collectors, prostitutes, drunks. It's the good and perfect Jesus who is also God. He spent time with these people Not just the rich and the powerful and the religious leaders. He spent time with the lowest people in society. His confidence didn't come from his education or his position or his network and how good he could look with other other people. His confidence came to love people and see them as image bearers. He doesn't pursue what's best for himself but what's best for other people. And all these examples, Jesus doesn't just understand people, but he puts himself in their place. Not for the sake of sympathy, but for the sake of his creation, for the world, and for the glory of God. And the moment we start thinking we're above people, we're unable to share in their, in their sufferings, the moment we stop sympathizing and sharing in people's joys and struggles, it's the moment that we miss out on the beauty of the gospel. We are not the originators of love. We are not a scientific reaction We worship the originator of love. And we can only love because of 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. Sincere love flows out of the sincere love of the Father. We can't accomplish sincere love. We can't view this as a to-do list as uh, as if sympathy is something that we can master. 
You can only get out of your own way to humble yourself and model sympathy towards others. Now, this is a really difficult passage to preach because as I'm, I'm uh, writing this and thinking about this and researching this, I'm put in lots of situations where I have to show and jump into the other place of other people. And I failed <laughs> many times because I was looking at myself. I was looking uh, for... Um, I was looking for the love of self. I was sincerely loving myself more than my family, more than people in our church community, and more than people in the world. And thankfully, um, and that's, that's, that's all of us to some respect. But thankfully, I have people that are not only willing to point, out, point that out and point me to Christ, but they actually do point me to Christ. Sometimes it's very painful, but it's the most loving thing that we can have. And so... I want to encourage you all, um, how are you guys practicing and modeling sympathy in your world, and how are you surrounding yourself with ways to succeed in that? And I would encourage you guys to look towards community. One of the most natural ways to find community is through our small groups, through our men's or women's ministry, but there's a lot of different ways to find community. We need people who love us enough to point us to Jesus, to say, you know what, you're looking to yourself. You are being selfish. You are loving yourself more than others. Sometimes people think the most loving thing you can do is just support everything that everybody does. That's not love. Love is pointing to Christ even when it's uncomfortable, even when it doesn't feel right, even when you're afraid of the reaction of the other person. True love confronts. True love encourages to go towards Christ. We also need the church, and not just the building, we need the people of the church. And the reason why this is so important is because if, if you look around, everyone is different. We all have different struggles. We all have different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some of us have different races. We're different. And the world's going to split that up. It's going to say, hey, here's the haves and here's the have-nots. Here's what certain races can and should do. This is what you're allowed to say. Here's what you're not allowed to say. Of course, there's wisdom to some of that, but it normalizes splitting people up, but that does not happen in the church, but it's hard not to do. I said, uh, I used this quote a couple weeks ago at the women's table, a, a once a month women's ministry on Wednesday, Wednesday morning, but I think it really applies to us now. I want to make sure that we say it. It came from the Bible Project. Um, and he said, I have more in common with a poor Nigerian Christian woman than a white male in my own political party but doesn't follow Jesus. I think it's an incredibly powerful statement. A lot of times we associate with people that look like us, might actually think similar to us, might follow the same policies, all that kind of stuff, when really the thing that unites us more than anything else, especially within the church, is that we all follow Christ. That is literally the most important thing about us as Christians. Jesus, not our politics, not how smart we are, not how talented we are, not our race, not how much money we have, not the people that we hang out with. It's Jesus. It shouldn't just help us get along, but should fundamentally change how we think about each other. And lastly, the Bible. We talk about this every week, but again, we are here what, maybe two hours a week, maybe three hours, depending on how, much thing, how many things that you're involved in throughout the week. 
We need the word of God to be forming us and shaping us as we go into a place and into a world, into a workplace, into a school that is literally saying the opposite of this. That literally says, do you do you. It's okay to be selfish. Treat yourself. All of these things, the word of God takes us in a, another direction. Sometimes it's really painful. Sometimes it's, it's really hard. That's why we have the community that we have in the church to push us towards love. We have a lot of different ways of engaging in God's word. We talked last week about the Uversion app. The Bible app has a ton of different plans. Start a plan today. There's year-long plans. There's week-long plans. There's long readings. There's short readings. At any level that you're at, I encourage you, get in the word of God. You can do that in our small groups. You can do that in the story of God. There's no excuse about not understanding the Bible. We've got plenty of resources. So living from God's love and sacrifice empowers us to model sympathy, but it also uh, empowers us to do something else, and that is to practice perspective. And that's a kingdom perspective that puts this life in the proper perspective. And again, we don't see the word perspective in this, this passage, but that concept permeates everything in this passage. It has everything to do with interacting with a world that is perishing, a world that doesn't believe in the things that we believe in, that doesn't hope for the things we hope for, and doesn't love for the things we love. Our, as Christians, our beliefs, will, at the very least, look weird to a watching world. So we need to know how to interact with that and to navigate our world systems, the, the morality and the people. We need perspective, not just any perspective, but a Jesus-centered kingdom perspective. The other morning, um, my son Hank, the one who thinks dogs are fluffy, uh, was shaking a bag of fruit snacks in my face while I was sleeping in the morning. And um, he said it was his right to eat candy whenever he wanted today. I was like, okay, you know, this is either a new rule that I wasn't aware of, which is not probably the case, or he was making this up, which is probably more the case. And so I'm like, what's going on here? Holly, what, what's happening here? And, and she's like, well, yeah, you got a ton of candy for our Valentine's Day at school this week. And so in order to mitigate him not going all in, you know, we, so you can have one piece of candy at any point of the day, and that's all you get for that day until the next day. And if your sister wants to, she can share a piece of candy with you. So at the very most, you can have two pieces of candy today, but it's probably not very likely that sister is going to share from her stash. That day, he wanted it before break. He wanted it before I even woke up. So we knew something was going to happen that day because he wasn't looking into the future. Because we knew Hank is going to want candy not only before I wake up, but before, again before breakfast and after breakfast, before lunch and after lunch, before dinner and after dinner, before bed. This is going to be a fight. We knew all day. He said he understood, but we knew he didn't understand. Now, as this is an illustration. There's a million different ways we can think of as the best time to eat candy in the day. Probably not before breakfast, hopefully, if you're an adult. But knowing Hank, we knew that he was going to want it all day. I'm someone who constantly thinks about treats, okay? I know that makes me sound kiddish. 
But I, I like to have delayed experiences, and that treat can be, you know, an experience. It can be, um, you know, a, a time of rest. It could actually be a treat. Like I love uh, having that delayed gratification. It's important to me. Important to me, and I think it's a. I think personally, it's a good way to look at life. I, no one wants to be the kind of adult that indulges in everything, right? We want to have some level of, of perspective about and boundaries and discipline. Uh, and, and we want Hank to decide that as well. At some point, we want him to understand perspective and discipline and that, you know, you can't have everything at once. And if you do, it's probably not the best idea. And so we got to look at this passage. What does this have to do with perspective? What does it have to do with the story? And I think it has everything to do with it. So let's look at verse 14 real quick, and then we'll, I'll, I'll bring these two together. It says in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay evil for evil, but be, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Living from God's love and sacrifice requires perspective, and we need to be willing to lose in the short term for a larger and greater prize. And that's where perspective comes in. It's almost as if God, as the father, as a wise father, is telling us that if you want your prize, if you want to win, we need to be willing to repay evil with good. When we live at peace with people, we don't take revenge people, you are living by a completely different standard with a completely different prize at the end. We have two different rival visions that are going to be a, a, we're going to wrestle with this until Jesus comes back. There's two rival visions and perspectives. We have the world's perspective and we have a kingdom perspective. The world's perspective says if you're embarrassed by someone, if you are hurt by someone, if someone slights you, if you are, um, if you don't like someone, take away your presence from them, hurt them back, make sure they feel it. If your enemy is hungry or thirsty, let them suffer because they're your, they're your enemy. They deserve it. And really, when we look at the kingdom of the world, what we're really looking at is the kingdom of self. That's what it all comes down to. What's best for me? The kingdom perspective is, is the upside-down version of that. Sometimes we talk about the upside-down kingdom. This is God's ethic. This is life with God, where Jesus is king. We're not king. That's what a kingdom perspective is. It's looking forward to something greater than current uh, treats and prizes that we can, can accomplish now through revenge. The kingdom perspective means that we engage our enemies in a way that they're not even going to see coming. Your decision to lose in the short term for something greater will not only look weird to them, but it's, it's going to stick with them. It's going to be as if you put burning coals on their head. It's going to be unmistakable. It's like a, a pebble in your sandal. It's, it's there. It's a constant reminder that something isn't the way it should be. It's a reminder that your love is different. I want to do a disclaimer. I want to make sure like there's a, there's a place for boundaries. 
in relationships and, and, and spending time with people. I don't say, hey, if you have an enemy, make sure that you do everything you can. It does say in here, live at peace with people as long as it depends on you. So if it's a person in your life that you feel like you need to have space from, don't do it because you want to hurt that person. Don't do it because you want to make sure that you feel, they feel the pain of not having your presence. Do it if it's preventing you or from them from sinning. So I just want to make sure I said that. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. The kingdom perspective on love or the originator of love defines what our love is and how we interact with others will not only look and feel strange to the watching world, it's going to look strange and feel weird to you too. It might hurt. It might be uncomfortable. It might be embarrassing. But that's why the kingdom-minded people have kingdom-minded perspective. We don't look at this list as something to accomplish. When we read the Bible, especially in things like this, uh, in, in our passage today, we cannot look at it as something to conquer. This isn't a to-do list. It's a new perspective on life. It's not what to think. It's how to think. Can you imagine uh, on, on your wedding day, you said, babe, I love you. And you checked it off. And you never said it again. It's unacceptable, right? I went to a marriage conference yesterday. That would be unacceptable. I learned that. <laughs> Can you imagine helping your friend through a hard time? Okay, so you help them through a hard time. You're like, oh, I helped my friend. Check. And then they come back. And because it's life, they're going to come back with something else. And you say, nope. No, no, no. Here he comes again. I already helped you. We're good now, right? Wouldn't, that wouldn't work. Imagine listening to your parents when you're like four years old. I tell Navy, at, well, she's six, and she's now able to clean her room effectively. And so I'm like, hey, Navy, clean your room. She does it, but she checks it off her list and never does it again. No one would accept these things. And that's, that's how we view this. We don't go into baptism and become a Christian and say, hey, I checked off the Christian list. Now I'm going to go and do whatever I want. No one lives life in that way. We can't view the scriptures in that way either. You cannot accomplish this. You cannot win at this. The only winning comes if we have perspective. You're going to be offended again. You're going to be hurt again. You're going to be frustrated again. You are going to be given a hundred million different ways of practicing perspective. It's life. But instead of looking for short-term wins, we as Christians have perspective. We live from love. We live from a kingdom perspective that God is going to avenge. God is going to repay. I view anything that I want to repay somebody as short-sighted, petty, or passive. I'm a bad judge. God is a good and perfect judge. Let's wait for him to get back at people to get back at our enemies, at the injustices we see in this world. One day we're going to live with God where it's going to be natural to live for the good of others, where blessings are going to be natural to our everyday lives. This isn't going to be natural to us, so we practice it. We practice it and we model it. We practice it and we model it. We're going to fail we're going to feel like we messed up. We're going to feel like everything is going wrong. But if we live from God's love and from God's sacrifice, it's going to push you back into relationships, push you back into his grace, push you back into his love. Because it's not about our accomplishments. It's not about our winning in the moment. It's about perspective. It's about love. 
And Five Oaks has given us plenty of ways to practice this. There's a lot of different organizations out there, um, and I could list them for a long time, things like Feed My Serving Children, Union Gospel Mission. These are ways for you to enter into people's lives, understand a different perspective, and walk alongside people who you may not even understand what they're going through, but it is a great learning experience that's not about you. But I also understand that I have little kids, so when I think about these things, I can't do some of these things with little kids. So I have three next steps that you can do with no kids or kids of any age that you can do with your small groups this week. And I don't have slides for this because I was late on it. And so you're going to have to write them down if this is something that you want to do, okay? So one of the things that is really um, underutilized, people don't use it, and I don't, I guess I understand why because it takes a little bit of extra work. But there's these things that we've talked about for a while. They're called Bless Your City Grants. Bless Your City Grants requires you to have your eyes open to the community surrounding you and seeing where there's hurt and pain and then doing something about it. So as a small group, as a family, as, somebody, as a group of people in here, if you see something, write to Dave Barr. Um, tell him, hey, listen, we see this hurt, we see this pain point here, and no one's doing anything about it, and he will literally finance you to do that. He will give you a grant to, to bless people in our community. It's a great idea. I wish we had so many people writing in that he has to just say no to people, and then you guys figure out how to finance it yourselves, because we are so kingdom-minded. We're so community-minded. Another thing, a uh, new thing, is adopting a missionary or partner. I know for uh, my family and for obviously if you're in here, you guys aren't on the mission field. Some of you guys are serving in the cities and in different ministries and, and that's wonderful. Um, but one way to share with people is by adopting a missionary. So if your small group has a missionary, you spend time communicating with them, finding out their wants or their needs and their prayer requests and supporting them and bringing up ways that the church can bless them. When they come into town on furlough, you can host them in your small group, host them in your homes. This is a way to share in things that we can't necessarily do or aren't able to do. And last, another new thing is the bridging organization. Bridging organization helps furnish homes of people who can't do it themselves. And so that might be furniture, but it might be setting up different packs, like a cleaning pack or a kitchen pack, where you find cleaning items or kitchen items, and you put them together in a box or in a bucket, and then you provide them for people who are in need to help furnish their homes. It helps you learn a someone's story that's not yours, struggles that may not be yours. It gives perspective of giving of your resources and of your time to love somebody. And have perspective to know that it matters. That's just a starting point. It's not an exhaustive list. But I want us as a community to be empowered to practice perspective. To model sympathy. Even when it feels like losing. And that we have something greater to live for. We're going to move into our time of response with communion. And communion is all about sharing in each other's pains and in our struggles. The idea of communion is where we join together and take the Lord's Supper together. If we have issues between somebody, it's, it's a call for us that if we're taking this, uh, 
make peace with that person. But it's also about perspective, perspective that uh, we look back at what Jesus has done, but we also look forward to what he's going to do. That's the hope that we have, a kingdom perspective. So we take his body and we remember that his body was broken for us. And we take his blood, remembering that his blood was shed for us. And we do this knowing that one day we're going to eat with him in his kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for loving us, sympathizing with us, and sharing life with us so that we can do the same. It's a, it, is, it is a way to live a fuller and richer life, looking not at ourselves, but at others. I pray as we enter into our workplaces, into our schools, into our teams or our clubs, as, as we are tempted to think about ourselves for our own glory, loving ourselves, Lord, give us perspective. Help us model sympathy, but also look for a greater prize in how we interact with people and how we give of ourselves. Lord, we do it because we love others because you first loved us. And we're thankful for that. In your name I pray, amen.